please stand for the reading of God's word. The portion of scripture that we will be examining this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. This portion of scripture can be found on page 495 of the blue ESV Bibles. As a reminder, those are located um, in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. Please know that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, that your word is living and active, that it wasn't just true when it was written hundreds, thousands of years ago, but it is just as true today and just as able to transform lives today. Father, and we ask for your transforming work through your Holy Spirit in each one of us this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you are able to work through weak vessels, Lord, and I confess I have, I have no power of my own whatsoever to transform any life, but we trust in the power of your spirit as your word is proclaimed. I pray that you would help me to do that faithfully this morning. I pray that you would help each one of us have ears to hear the gospel this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your promises that your word will not return to you empty it will accomplish every purpose for which you send it forth. And so, Lord, we, we trust in that. We trust in your promises this morning. Lord, and, and we ask with great expectation that you would continue your sanctifying work in us as we hear your word and that you would call people from death to life as they hear your word and hear the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We well, guys can have a seat. As we continue our study this morning through the Gospel of Mark, I I want to remind you that this section of Mark that we've been in for a while now, Mark chapters 11 and Mark chapter 12, is is a portion in the story of Jesus where he's, he's come to Jerusalem now. It's the last week of his life before his crucifixion. And Jesus, at this point in time, is pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders 
of Israel. It begins with the cursing of the fig tree back in Mark chapter 11, which we've, we've talked about extensively already. But if you'll remember, Jesus approaches the fig tree, which looks or appears to be healthy, but, but when Jesus goes up to it, he finds that the tree has no fruit. And, and what Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders is you are like this tree. You do all of these religious activities, you do all of these religious things, and you look like you are healthy, but you are not. You have no fruit. And your religious works, your religious activities are worthless. Why? Because your hearts are rotten. Your hearts do not truly love me. At another point in the gospel, he compares them to whitewashed tombs who are beautiful on the outside, but rotten and dead on the inside. Jesus then continues to pronounce judgment on the religious leaders with his clearing out of the temple, uh, followed by uh, the parable of the tenants, which he, he tells to them. And in response... The, the Jews, the Sanhedrin specifically, send, send different groups to Jesus to ask him difficult questions with the goal of trapping Jesus in his words so that they can get rid of him, right? Jesus, Jesus threatened all of the religious powers and they wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him gone. So they attempted to trap him by asking him all of these different questions. Now, in our text this morning that Raven read for us, Jesus is asked a question about the law. What is the greatest commandment? And what we're going to see this morning is that once again, Jesus, with his answer, is indicting Israel's leaders his answer is an indictment on the on the religious leaders of the Jews. And yet it is it is a source of great hope and great encouragement for all of those who have put their faith and their trust in the Messiah. So let's let's dive back into our text. We'll begin in verse 28, which says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, if, if you'll remember, the, the Sanhedrin were essentially like a Jewish Supreme Court. And within this court, there are different groups or different factions. They all had their different agendas. We had the scribes, we have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. Now, the scribes were, were those who were essentially the theologians. The scribes were the experts in interpreting the scriptures, interpreting the Torah, right? Which, which the Torah refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. And so naturally, this scribe asks Jesus a theological question. This is not a political question like Jesus has already received. This is a theological question, a question about the law, a question about the scriptures. And it's important to note 
that this appears to be a genuinely sincere question. Mark tells us that this scribe is impressed by what he is hearing from Jesus. He recognizes that here is a man with great wisdom, and I want to know what this man has to say. And so it would seem from the text that the scribe here is not attempting to trap Jesus as many of the others were doing, but he truly wants to know what Jesus has to say to his question. And his question is this, which commandment is the most important of all? Or which commandment is the greatest? Now, the Jewish rabbis counted 613 different statutes or laws in the Torah. They taught that as a good Jew, you needed to obey 613 different rules or commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a lot of rules to follow. Just try sitting your kids down this afternoon and and telling them you have 613 rules that you expect them to follow as a part of your household. That would probably be overwhelming. But because they had so many commandments, so many rules, attempts were made by the rabbis and by the teachers to try and differentiate between the greater commandments and the lesser commandments, right? If we've got to follow 613 rules, there's got to be some of these that are probably more important than others. Which are the most important? Which carry the most weight? Now, in our home... Uh, Like most homes, we have rules that we expect our children to follow. Hopefully, if you have children, you have rules for them in the home. Now, one of our rules is to put your shoes away after you take them off. Instead of kicking and, and flinging them and letting them land wherever they might land, as some of our children like to do sometimes. Another one of our rules is don't punch your brother or sister in the face, right? That's a, that's a good rule, I think. Now, one of those rules is more important than the other. And it's the shoes, obviously, right? We want those put away. No, but if, if you punch your brother or sister in the face, you will have a much greater consequence than if you forget to put your shoes away. Why? Because one of those rules carries what much more weight than the other. And this is what the Jews attempted to do with the laws of the Torah. They attempted to formulate which commandments were the greatest and the most important. So the question that the scribe asks Jesus is is not just some random question that happened to pop into his mind right at that point in time. This would have been a question that he had put serious thought into. This was this was a serious question. And so Jesus provides him with a serious answer. Verses 29 to 31. Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. In response to the question of which commandment is the greatest, Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. Now, these verses were known to the Jews as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, right? That's, that's how the, the verses begin. Hear, O Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a command to hear, to listen, and obey. That's where we get the, the term Shema. And the Shema was essentially a confession of faith for the Jewish people. Every Jew in Israel would have been familiar with these two verses in Deuteronomy. And if you were a faithful Jew, then you would recite these verses, you would recite the Shema every morning and every evening. And so, when Jesus quotes the Shema, when he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 as, as the greatest commandment, I want you to notice two things. Number one, the Jewish leaders most likely would have not had any problem with his answer. They probably would have agreed with that. They probably would have thought, you know, that's a pretty good answer. Secondly, the Jewish leaders would have been convinced that they were faithfully keeping that commandment and keeping that commandment better than everyone else. So, so let's look at these verses here. Um, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It, it begins by saying, after calling the people to hear, to listen, it, be, it begins by saying that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is, this is not a statement about the internal unity of God. This, this is not a statement that seeks to deny the reality of the Trinity that God is three in one. This is a statement of exclusivity. In other words, what God is saying is that I alone am God. I alone am Israel's God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt into the promised land. Therefore, you must love and worship me exclusively. That's what God is saying. That's still true today. See, God will not share our love or our worship with anyone or anything else. He will not do it. Right? That's what, that's what the scriptures mean when it talks about God being a jealous God. Right? You know, it has nothing to do with what Oprah said about, you know, God is jealous of me, right? Nothing to do with that. It talks about God being a jealous God. God is jealous for the love and worship of his people. Just like as a husband, I am jealous for my wife. I will not share her with someone else. And she is jealous for me. She will not share me with someone else. And that kind of jealousy is good. And right, God is jealous for his people. He will not share worship or love. Being a Christian means exclusive worship of God. Because God alone is Israel's God, he is commanding the exclusivity and totality of their worship. He wants 
all of them. He demands all of them. He demands all of me, all of you. God does not want a piece of you. God does not want a part of you, right? God God doesn't want a little sectioned off part of your life that, that you give him on Sunday mornings from time to time. God wants, God demands all of you, all of your life, everything you have. How are we to love God? We are to love God, Jesus says, with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. In other words, we are to love God with our entire beings, with everything we have, everything we are. Now, God is not calling us here um, to love him in four completely distinct ways. In other words, when, when you stand before God someday, God's not going to say, uh, you know what? You loved me really, really well with your heart. And, and you, you did great with loving me with your mind. And you, sh- you sure loved me really, really well with your strength. But, but your, your loving me with your soul was a little bit off, right? That's not the point of the text here. The question will be, did you love me with all of your being? That's what it means to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That That is the point of the text. But But let's look at each of those in turn as we consider our command to love God. We are first commanded to love God with all of our hearts. Now, the heart for the Jews was the center of all physical and spiritual life. To love God with all your heart is to love him with all of yourself at the deepest root, the deepest core of your being. To love God with all of our hearts is to have our deepest desires, our greatest affections set on him and him alone. Ladies, imagine imagine if a guy was proposing to you and he got down on one knee and he said, I love you moderately. I, I, I want to give some of myself to you. I am going to be partially committed to you. Baby, I am going to be there for you some of the time. Right? Nobody wants that. No one wants that. We, we wanna, we wanna bind ourselves to someone who will love us completely and absolutely. And if that's the kind of love that we expect as sinful human beings, how much more does a holy God demand complete and absolute love from His people? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. We are, we are next commanded to love God with all of our souls. Now, to love God with our souls, in the word of R.C. Sproul, means that our love for Him is not to be tepid or lukewarm. Like, like the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. God says, I'm gonna, you are lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out. But our love for God must be white hot. We, we must love God with a blazing zeal and passion. There should be nothing in this world that we are more passionate about, that we are more committed to 
than loving God. Loving God, glorifying God, should be what drives every single thing that we do. We are commanded to love God with all of our strength. To love God with all of our strength means that every ounce of energy that we have should go towards loving and glorifying God. I love, I love Jonathan Edwards. For those of you that aren't familiar with Jonathan Edwards, he, he wrote a whole list of resolutions, um, which, which governed the way that he desired to live his life. And if, if you take all of those and you, you boil them down, basically it amounts to this. I, I want to love and glorify God with every single moment of my being of my life and with every ounce of strength that I have that's that's what his resolutions amounted to that's what it means that's what it looks like to love God with all of our strength that there there is nothing that we will not give in our pursuit of loving God and glorifying him if if it costs me everything that I have if it costs me my reputation if it costs me my life I will love the Lord my God, I will give him all of myself, everything that I have, day after day after day. Think about, think about the strength that people invest in performing their jobs. And that should pale in comparison to the energy that we invest in loving and seeking after the Lord our God. Let me speak to the men, to the husbands, to the fathers. Are you expending every ounce of your strength in pursuing the Lord and in leading your families to do the same? Right When you get home from work and you are just completely exhausted, are you using every ounce of strength that you have to lead your family in worship, to lead your family in opening the scriptures together, to lead your family in praying and teaching them to pray in praying over them. We want to have a healthy church. We need healthy fathers and husbands who are committed to loving the Lord their God and discipling and leading their families in doing the same. Now, our, our, our culture today put so much emphasis on on leaving our children with a financial inheritance right and, and and let me say there's certainly nothing wrong with working hard to leave your children your family with a financial inheritance in fact i would i would say that's wise and it's good but but hear me on this that is not what your children primarily need what your children need is a father is a mother who will leave them a spiritual inheritance who will invest everything that they have every every ounce of strength that they have in loving God pursuing God and teaching their children to do the same and I I, I can stand up here and say I am I am so thankful beyond words that I had and still have today a father and a mother who have invested exponentially more into my spiritual inheritance than into any financial inheritance. And I, I thank and I praise the Lord for that. And I pray that we will do the same 
for our children, for our families. Deuteronomy um, commands us to love God with our hearts, our souls, and our strength. But Jesus, Jesus adds a fourth one in. Jesus says that we are to love God with all of our minds. Love God with all of your mind. Now, if we are to truly love God, then we must know God, right? That makes sense, I think. If we are to love God, we must know God. And if we are to truly know God, then we must know His Word. We cannot and will never know God if we do not know His Word. And if we would truly know God's Word, then we must diligently read and study His Word and study those authors who have written truthfully about His Word. I sometimes hear hear people say, I've, I've run into this many times, a lot of you probably have as well, but I've heard people say, you know, I don't, I don't really need to study the Bible. I'm not really interested in that. I am certainly not interested at all in studying theology and doctrine. I just want to love God. You ever heard that before? I don't need theology. I don't need doctrine. I don't need to study. I just want to love God. Here's the problem with that. If you don't discipline your mind to study God's word, then you will be worshiping a God that you do not even know. And if you think that theology and right doctrine is unimportant, you will end up worshiping a God of your own invention. That's called idolatry. I remember talking to someone a couple of years ago, and I've, I've had more than one conversation like this over the years. We were talking about theology, um, what they believed, what I believed, and, and specifically we were talking about God's sovereign election. That I, I, am, I am saved not because I was able to drum up faith in myself and, and because I chose God, but I am saved because God was merciful and chose me. We were, we were talking about all these, all these different things. And the thing that they kept saying over and over was, was not anything based in scripture. What they kept arguing over and over was, well, that doesn't fit my idea of who God is. Right? That doesn't gel with my perception of who I think God should be. That's what they kept saying over and over. But here's the thing. It does not matter who you perceive God to be. What matters is who God has revealed himself to be in his word. Because that is the God that we are commanded to love. If we would love God with our minds, we must be dedicated to reading, studying, and knowing his word. That, that is not optional. Now if we put all of those together, what do we get? We get, we get this. 
that we are to love God with our entire beings, with all of ourselves. That is the point of the Shema. That is what Paul has in mind in Romans 12.1 when he commands us to offer or to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What, what Paul is saying is that a Christian must offer all of him or herself to God. A Christian must love God with their entire being. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But Jesus isn't finished. He says in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The greatest commandment is to love God, but right after that we are commanded to love our neighbor. And Jesus is now quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which tells us you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the first question naturally then is who is my neighbor, right? That's a question that Jesus was asked by a lawyer in Luke chapter 10. You see, the Jews tended to have a very, very narrow definition of who their neighbor was, right? Your neighbor, if, if you were a God-fearing Jew, your neighbor was other God-fearing Jews, right? Love those people, the people that are just like you. But Jesus comes in with the parable of the Good Samaritan and he blows that definition to bits. Jesus had a very different answer on who your neighbor is. See, the Samaritans... Uh, were absolutely hated by the Jews. Jesus was saying, even the people you most despise are your neighbors. Love them as yourself. It's essentially saying what he says in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. The, the truth is, these two commandments cannot be separated. We can never separate those two commandments. We cannot claim to love God if we do not love His image bearers. John puts it very plainly, 1 John 2, 9. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Love for God will always, without exception, be evidenced by love for our neighbor. It's, it's, the, it's the same argument that James makes in James chapter 2 when he's talking about faith and works. James, James says, faith without works is dead, right? Y- y'all recognize those verses from James 2. What he's saying is, if your faith does not produce good fruit or good works, then your faith is not genuine faith, right? That's, that's the point of that passage. And we can say the same thing about loving our neighbor. If our love for God does not produce love for our neighbor, then our love for God is not genuine. Plain and simple. Love God. Love your neighbor. We, we are not merely encouraged to do that. We are commanded to do that. Verse 32, 33, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart 
and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, this is, this is a profound statement coming from a Jew in the Sanhedrin who, who would have put tremendous emphasis and weight on the sacrificial system. For many of the Jews, being faithful to offer the required offerings and sacrifices would have been the most important commandments to follow. But, but what the scribe is saying here and saying correctly is that loving God with all of our beings will always be more important, will always take precedence over any religious activity that we are commanded to perform. And we see this in the scriptures over and over again. I'll give you one example from, from Amos chapter 5. Amos five twenty one to 24 says this. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. We've got a lot of churches in the United States that need to pay attention to that verse. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, this specific passage was addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel were doing a lot of religious activities. They were celebrating the religious feasts like they were commanded to do. Right. If you if you get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it, it, it goes through all of that, all all the different feasts, assemblies they were to commemorate and celebrate all the different sacrifices they were to offer. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they were celebrating the religious feasts. They were offering their sacrifices. They were pretending to love God, but their hearts were far from him. In reality, they were worshiping golden calves on the high places and they were oppressing the poor in order to make themselves wealthy. They were, they were making themselves rich by, by taking even the little that the poor had and taking it for themselves. In other words, they were not loving God and they were not loving their neighbor. Despite, hear this, despite all of their religious activities that they were doing. Despite all the religious actions. And what does God say? God says, I hate your worship. I hate it. See, when we pretend to worship God without truly loving Him with our entire beings, our worship is not just empty, but it's despicable to the Lord. God does not just ignore that kind of false worship. He loathes it with all of his being. He hates it. So listen to this, because this, this applies to people in, in probably every church throughout the nation. 
If you show up to church sometimes and, and you sit through some of the sermons and you come up here and you take the Lord's Supper and you crack your Bible occasionally, but you do not love the Lord your God with all of your being, if that's you, then God hates your so-called worship. He despises it. Religious activity does not equal genuine love for the Lord. If you are merely going through the religious motions without truly loving God, by delighting in God, by living in obedience to His Word, then you are a tree without fruit. And what does Jesus do to that fig tree? He curses it, right? He curses it. When Jesus quoted the commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it was an indictment of the Jewish leaders because they were not loving God. They were pretending to, right? But as the scripture says, they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And that's an indictment on many churchgoers today who show up, who come through the line, who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe answered well. He was on the right track, right? All the religious activity in the world is absolutely useless if we are not loving God with all of our beings and loving our neighbor. But I want you to notice this. This, this is really, really important. Jesus does not say to the scribe, you are in the kingdom of God. What does he say? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a big difference, right? So some something important, something vital is still missing here. So, so let's take a minute for some self-reflection, right? I, I want you to really think here because if we ended the sermon right here, I think it would be quite discouraging, right? And the, the reason is this. Which one of you could stand up right now and testify that you have loved the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? Who could do that this morning? The answer is no one. None of us could do that. I could certainly not do that. The reality is, not only have we failed to keep this commandment, but we can't even keep it for a few minutes, right? In fact, I would, I would confess that there has never been a single moment in my entire existence where I have loved God with all of my heart and all of my soul, mind, and strength, not even one time has that been true of me. Not even once. However, and here's the gospel. There is one man 
who lived in perfect obedience to God's law. And there is one man who truly loved God, the Father, with all of his heart and with all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. That is the second, the better Adam, who did what the first Adam could not do and failed to do. Romans 6.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, it's not something that we're always aware of, but, but let, me, let me tell you this morning that Jesus did not only die for you, but Jesus also lived for you. Jesus lived in perfect obedience on your behalf. And if you are in Christ, then he has forgiven you of your shortcomings as, and has imputed his perfect obedience to you. Right? And so... And so when, when Christ saves you, he doesn't just leave you as like a blank slate, like a morally neutral person who can then choose good or evil, right? No, but he takes his obedience and his righteousness and he clothes you with it. That's what Jesus did when he saved you. Every one of us, without exception, we will one day stand before God to be judged. All of us. If you are an unbeliever, if you have not trusted in Christ, then you will be judged based on how well you have obeyed the great commandment. Did you love God perfectly with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And on that day, you will be found guilty. No matter how many religious activities you have performed, you will be found guilty of being a lawbreaker if you do not repent and turn to Christ. But if you're a believer, if if you have placed your faith, your trust in Christ to save you from your sin, then you will be judged on how well Christ obeyed the great commandment. That's good news, right? So what shall we say then? If Christ has has given us this grace and has given us his righteousness and obedience, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? As as Paul kind of sarcastically asks in Romans, the answer is Of course not. Absolutely not. See, as Christians, we must, we not, not, not we should, we must work with all of our might to love God with everything that we have. That is not optional. But the motivation to love God is not that we might obtain a righteousness of our own. The motivation to love God is that even though we have broken his law over and over and over, Christ has kept it on our behalf and clothed us with his righteousness. Soli Deo Gloria. 
all glory alone to God. See, this is what the scribe was still missing. Right? He, he was on the right track, but he was not in the kingdom of God. This is what he was missing, a Messiah who had perfectly kept the law on his behalf, despite his constant breaking of it. In summary, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with your entire being. Have we done that? No. Then place your trust in the one who has. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to humble us more and more through your word. I confess, Lord, that I have not loved you as I should. And yet I I thank you with all of my heart for sending your son who did what, what Adam could never do, who did what I could never do, who loved you and lived in, in perfect obedience and fulfilling your law on, on my behalf, on our behalf. Lord, we are, we are full of gratitude and praise for what Christ has done for us. We thank you with all of our hearts. And, and as we recognize the truth of your gospel, that Christ died for us, that Christ lived for us, that Christ continues to intercede for us even now. As, as we understand these truths more and more clearly, may it produce in us an ever, ever greater desire and delight in loving you with all that we have. Lord, we know we don't do it perfectly. And yet our, our desire is to love you, to live for your glory with, with all of our might, with all of our beings. Would you help us to do that, Lord, today and every day until you return to take us to be with you. And then we rejoice that we, we will love you perfectly. We will, we, and on that day we will love you and for all eternity we will get to enjoy loving you with all of our hearts and all of our souls and minds and strength. And for that we give you all glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have now as the body of Christ the tremendous privilege of coming to the Lord's table and celebrating his supper together and celebrating the fact that although we, all of us, are lawbreakers, um, that Christ kept the law on our behalf and offered himself in our place through his body, through his blood, that we might be clothed with his obedience and with his righteousness. That's why we get to come to the table. So if you are a believer, I want to invite you to come and partake. If you are not a believer, then I want to um, very sternly warn you um, of what we've heard this morning. And if you come, if you come to this table... As an unbeliever who doesn't truly love the Lord, thinking that it'll, you know, do you some kind of religious good, um, then, then God hates that kind of false worship. 
Scripture says that you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And so we, we plead with you not to come to the table, but even more so, we, we plead with you that today would be the day that you, by faith, embrace Christ as your Savior. We plead with you. The great evangelist George Whitfield, once, once in preaching to a great number of people, he, he said, you have no way of knowing that this will not be the last time that you ever hear the gospel call. And so come to the Lord Jesus and repent today. And if you're not a believer, then, then we, we pray and we plead with you that you would turn to the Lord today. And we would love to, to talk to you about what that means and what that looks like. Myself and Pastor Mark and, and Gabriel would, would love to help you and walk you through that. But know that, that we're praying for you and, and we plead that you will today turn to Christ and not wait. Um, but for the rest of you, um, we invite you to come and partake of the elements and then take them back to your seat. And in a moment, we'll take them together. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, we thank you that in your mercy, in your grace, you sent your Son to become a curse for us, to pay the penalty of our sin, to die a a horrific death, but but so much more than that, to, to bear your wrath that we should have borne and we deserved to bear. Thank you. Through the, the broken body of Jesus and his, his spilled blood, his blood of the covenant, we are counted righteous in your sight. Thank you that, thank you that he who knew no sin became sin, that, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you with all of our hearts. We are so grateful, Lord. And may, may there never, ever be a day where our hearts are not filled with gratitude towards the sacrifice of Christ. We give you all praise, all glory, and all honor in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would put your hands in a receiving position, let me read a benediction for you from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.